It's one thing to say fuck it to diets when they're geared toward weight loss and body punishment, but what about when you feel stuck on a diet for medical reasons? Unfortunately, this is all too common for people with IBS. Low carb and low fiber diets like SCD or the low FODMAP diet are frequently prescribed to people with irritable bowel syndrome. And while you may feel relief from symptoms eating this way, restriction sucks and it isn't usually sustainable. But even more importantly, it's not getting to the root of the problem. In the IBS Freedom Podcast, your hosts, Amy and Nikki, discuss root causes and natural remedies so that you can finally heal your IBS and eat normally again. Their expertise as a registered dietitian and a functional medicine doctor are sure to provide valuable insight no matter where you are in your IBS journey. Plus, both Amy and Nikki healed their own IBS, so they speak from both personal and professional experience. The IBS Freedom Podcast is available on YouTube and podcasting platforms everywhere. It's Caroline here, and I just want to say before I get into this episode, I recorded this episode on Election Day. So if you're listening to this on November 9th or sometime after, and I'm not addressing the results, it's because I don't know. And this episode is not going to really address the election at all, so it might feel a little um, tone deaf depending on what happens and how you're feeling. So, But I just want you to understand that it's only because of when I recorded it and um, my like <laughs> serious overwhelm with the whole thing in the first place. So I'm... <clears throat> I am distracting myself by working on this episode today and I hope you're taking care of yourself and I hope you're feeling good. I hope we're all feeling good. Hi, it's Caroline again and you're listening to the Fuck It Diet podcast and today I'm going to be sharing my conversation with Shira Rose. She's a body positive fashion blogger and she's also an eating disorder therapist and today we're going to be talking about both her experience with her own eating disorder in treatment centers and also from her perspective as an eating disorder dietitian. So that's going to be happening just a little later in the episode. Before we get there, I'm going to be doing some Q&As, some questions. I asked, mm, it was before the last episode, I asked Instagram for some questions for upcoming podcast episodes. So I'm going to get to like three or four more of those. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the definition of a diet because sometimes I get into semantics. Actually, let me start there. So in the past two weeks on Instagram, there's always drama. You know, there's always drama everywhere, but there's always drama on Instagram. And there's always drama on Instagram when we're talking about anti-diet stuff because people get very upset and they feel very threatened and they feel very triggered. And, you know, that's just the way it is. But this past week, I, um, I shared a little meme that was about intermittent fasting. It was a joke. It was by, um, let me actually look up exactly what it was, just so you know exactly what I'm talking about. And then I can credit the person who actually wrote it. So it was from Erica Romy, Romy R-O-M-Y, and her handle is Everybody's Beautiful. And you can find this on my page. I reshared 
her post and it says, intermittent fasting is such a funny way of spelling diet. It's a joke, but it's also a little stab at intermittent fasting people thinking that it's not a diet. And of course, people came out of the woodwork very, very frustrated that uh, I was calling intermittent fasting a diet. So I got a lot of comments that were something along the lines of, intermittent fasting is not a diet, it's a way of life. I mean, aren't we all on diets because we all eat and that's the definition of a diet? That's something I'm gonna be talking about, the semantics debate about the word diet. And I mean, we fast every night while we're sleeping, so what's a few more hours? I feel amazing, I feel healthy, I love it. It's not a diet because I personally love it. And of course, I'm kind of exaggerating, but not even really. Got lots of lots of comments, lots of angry comments. And here's the thing, whether you love intermittent fasting or not, whether you believe in the health hype, whether you have personally benefited from it or believe that you've benefited from it, it is still a diet. No matter which way you slice it, it is a diet. And it's a diet that you have every right to be on, body autonomy, but it is a diet. And, you know, I just, the, the, every single diet says it's a lifestyle change and not a diet, but that's just code. It's just rebranding. It's just the way that diets are pivoting to try. And, you know, they, they understand that people think that diets are old school and diets don't work. So if we call it a lifestyle change, you know, people won't be able to argue with it, but it's all the same thing, really. It's literally skipping meals. That's what it is. And yes, I do believe that it is possible to do it in a way that's not disordered, but I think it's very rare. I think, um, I think it's, it's really risky, especially if you have any sort of history of disordered eating or eating disorders, obviously. And I, I also think that a lot of people who start it, maybe quote unquote for the right reasons, will quickly become disordered with it because that's just what happens. So I feel very strongly that it's no use trying to convert someone. Like there's no part of me that wants to go on to intermittent fasting pages or get into fights with people who are intermittent fasting or to tell someone who's intermittent fasting and like having the time of their life and sure that they're so happy and so healthy and gonna do this forever, whether it's true or not, that me going up to them or writing to them or you know commenting back and forth and saying no you need to stop this is a huge problem now obviously if it's like getting if it's very clear disordered eating or eating disorder then you could argue that like telling someone that what they're doing if you you know if you know them it's not going to help coming from some person on the internet but telling someone that their behaviors are disordered you know has a time and a place but in my position, I'm not going to go out and try to convert people who are on any sort of diet to the fuck it diet or to intuitive eating. I don't think it's very effective. I really think it takes, you know, I will plant seeds and I, I do think that there are, there definitely are people who follow me who are still keto and still dieting and still doing intermittent fasting. Um, and they follow for a reason, right? They, they, they think that there's something on my page that might apply to them, though, you know, maybe they haven't made up their mind and maybe they're not sure. Um, you know, in that case, maybe I'm planting some seeds for them to figure it out as they go to see if it really is working for them to see if it does keep backfiring, which it really does. But, you know, I really think it 
it takes the person maybe after seeds have been planted but realizing on their own that this does not work or that even if it quote unquote works the cost is too high the mental health cost um, and often the physical cost as well so you know i i really i'm not looking to fight with people i'm not looking to tell people that what they're doing is wrong i will delete comments that are you know that are pushing a certain diet or glorifying it or triggering to other people who are confused and trying to stop dieting or trying to heal their eating disorder or disordered eating but you know and the thing is like on someone's page you don't have the right to write whatever you want even if you believe it even if you've had a certain experience whatever but i think i think i had a point with this and now i just don't even remember but i you know, I'm not, I never want to shame people, but I am going to share what I believe. And I believe that intermittent fasting is a diet. And I think for the majority of people, it's super problematic and probably will end up backfiring in, in a bigger way if it hasn't already. That being said, you're allowed to do whatever you want. And I don't actually even really care. But let's talk about this thing that I get into with people where we start, where people start throwing around the definition of the word diet is if I'm some kind of idiot who doesn't understand what the other alternate definition of a diet is. Okay. You know, just like I said earlier, they'll say something like, well, everyone's on a diet. How are you even defining diet? A diet just means the way you eat. And of course, yes and no, there are two noun definitions of diets. And yes, I just looked this up just to be even more precise. One, the kinds of food that a person, animal, or community habitually eats. And that is what they're trying to weaponize against me, as if I don't know about that definition. Then there's the second definition. And that is the one that we all tend to use culturally when we say the word diet. A special, this is from dictionary.com, a special course of food to which one restricts oneself, restricts, either to lose weight or for medical reasons. And then there's a verb to restrict oneself to small amounts or special kinds of food in order to lose weight. My definition that I said when I was responding to these people saying, well, you know, what are you saying? All diets are bad. We all are on a diet. We're all eating food. Yeah, that's using two different definitions of the word against each other. And that's not how it works. I said that the definition of a diet is a way to manipulate the way you eat which I don't believe is helpful or healthy in the long run, unless you are allergic to a certain food or unless you genuinely intuitively feel better avoiding certain foods. And that is found through your own process and not through following the rules of someone else's diet. Um, so I just wanted to say that just for the hell of it, just because I'm sure you know, I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you understand that. But it is something that I run into over and over and over again with people who are defensive and want to fight with me <laughs> on Instagram. And it's annoying. But um, I saved a highlight so I can just send that to people now and be like, okay, I understand you want to fight a actual definition of the word diet with the uh, with the alternative definition of the word diet, but it's not really helpful.
Okay, so we're going to get into the Q&As next, but first, this episode's next sponsor is Lou Urich and her program, The Mend Sessions. Lou is a certified eating psychology coach and body image mentor, and her online course, The Mend Sessions, is a self-paced 10-week course for the woman who is ready to find food freedom, befriend her body, and move on with her life. The men's sessions can serve as a powerful starting point or a comprehensive refresher for those who are already committed to anti-diet and weight neutral living. The men's sessions is full of downloadable lessons and resources and worksheets on the topics of intuitive eating, body image, joyful movement, self-compassion, intuition, self-talk, binge and emotional eating, and more. As you can hear, it covers a lot and it covers all of the aspects of this journey. And plus, you will get access to expert interviews and an optional community support and monthly Q&As with Lou. To learn more about the men's sessions and to hear from past participants, you can visit Lou's website at louurich.com. That's L-U-U-H-R-I-C-H.com. And you can find all of those links in the show notes of this episode. And exclusively for you, a listener of the Fuck a Diet podcast, you can use the code FUCKIT, all one word, at checkout and you'll get $30 off your mend sessions enrollment. Go check it out and check out Lou Yurik on Instagram as well. Okay, so the first question I'm gonna answer is how do I balance eating what I want with a limited budget and feelings of food scarcity? So this is hard because feelings of food scarcity, like true food scarcity, where you don't feel like you have access to the food that you need, to enough food that you need, um, for whatever reason, for famine or for financial reasons, is actually the biological reason that we respond the way we respond on diets. It is scarcity, right? And our bodies don't know when we're doing it to ourselves that we're doing it to ourselves. And so when you have real food scarcity because of a budget, limited resources, that is really hard to, unlike dieting and diet culture and beliefs about food and rules about food, which you can unlearn and help your body to feel safe through allowing food and refeeding. When there's actual food scarcity and when you really don't feel, like even if it is just perceived, like maybe you really do have enough money for food, but you still kind of worry about it and you, you're kind of like on the on the edge and you know you do have to budget even if it that means that you have access to enough food you're still having to kind of think about the cost of things which can trigger this sort of like food hoarding and disordered relationship with food and it's really hard to navigate that because you can't just unlearn that it's something that you have to live with and navigate and kind of get creative with so it's hard and and really the answer as long as because there are people who I know and who I've worked with and who I've heard from in the past who kind of have a budget around food that's a little bit arbitrary and they don't necessarily realize that they're doing this but it's actually a part of restriction Um, it's sort of like this way of feeling like it's a legitimized restriction um, even if it's a little bit arbitrary so just to make sure within yourself that it's not that but of course that isn't the case you know in all cases 
So if you're there, you really are on a budget or you really do have limited access to food um, because of your budget, you need to figure out how to buy lower calorie. Uh, sorry, sorry. No, 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 not lower calorie, lower cost. I wrote lower, cal- lower calorie, but I meant lower cost. Damn. Lower cost, dense foods, meaning higher calorie, lower cost in bulk, like rice and pasta and potatoes, peanut butter. Um, you know, there's a reason why a lot of cultures live on rice and beans and rice and vegetables and tofu. Like these are staples of a lot of cultures because they feed you, you know, and they are simple and they are cost effective. And, you know, it's not fun because of course you want to be able to eat whatever you want. You want to be able to have chocolate cakes on demand, but you know, even people who don't have a budget still have to deal with the practicalities of like getting the food that you crave in that moment. And I think I've had a lot of questions in the past where people are like, well, how am I supposed to get the cookies that I crave at 11.30 p.m.? And it's like, okay, well, you don't have to. You have to just make do and feed yourself with what you have. And yes, there's planning involved. Um, And you can plan for the future and stock your kitchen if, you know, if you hopefully can afford it. But we we all have to deal with practicalities, right? Um, So in this case, with with a budget, ooh, sorry, I just hit the table. With a budget... It really will be helpful to learn how to cook and to bake for yourself and to, you know, have that at least be the staple so you know that you have abundant, calorically dense food in your house. Um, And maybe learn how to cook a few dishes that feel really decadent and really delicious and aren't too expensive. Um, Even if it's just some sort of tricked out mac and cheese. I think that's, I think the baking and cooking is really going to be your friend here. And also just figuring out, you know, the opposite of dieting, which is where we buy these expensive foods that have fucking no calories in them, which is just so nonsensical. We want to do the opposite. We want to buy cheap foods that have a lot of calories in them. You know, if, if you don't have access to food, that's what you have to focus on, especially in the beginning. Uh, so... The last thing to remember is if there is a little bit of wiggle room in your budget, remember that the cost of disordered eating is really high and the cost of not having the food that you need or are hungry for is also really high and is going to keep you stuck. So if you have the ability, prioritize that over alcohol, over, you know, whatever kind of extra things that may cost money because food really is an essential and should be prioritized in general, but also especially if you're healing your relationship with food. Okay, so here is the next question. How to mentally deal with weight gain while not restricting? Now, I ask these I ask for these questions on Instagram and not everybody who follows my Instagram and who asks me questions has read my book. So I never really know whether this is like a follow-up question, a reminder question, or someone who's pretty new to it and maybe has read Intuitive Eating, but hasn't read my book and doesn't understand that they're actually different and they actually address different things. And my book expands on certain things that Intuitive Eating doesn't, and Intuitive Eating expands on certain things that my book doesn't. Um, But the first thing is reminding yourself and having that expectation that you will gain weight. So if you have an expectation that you're gonna go through this process and you're not really gonna gain weight, when you do, you're gonna panic because you were planning for something different. So understanding how normal it is, and again, 
reading as much as you can, reading my book, putting it into context, understanding that it is healing. And I understand that that doesn't erase all of the panic. It doesn't at all. And I'm going to address that next. But um, having that understanding and expectation that you will gain weight and that it is protective and corrective and healing, I think is really important. Um, the nail is going to come. I'm almost positive. I can hear something outside. Um, maybe it's just my neighbor. Okay. Second, it's about identifying those beliefs under the panic. So it's up. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. It's just the mailman, Molly. It's okay. It's okay. Ah, oh, she was sleeping at my feet. Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. Okay, you gotta chill, please. So it's about identifying those beliefs underneath that panic. So that is what I address in the mental part of the Faka Diet book, but we learn things and they live in our subconscious. It's the rules about, you know, the diet rules that we have sort of taken on, even if we don't consciously agree with them anymore, sometimes they can wreak havoc, havoc from the background if we don't very consciously address them and figure out all the stuff in our subconscious that's stressing us out around food and weight. So with weight, it's about understanding and identifying what are like the, what are the base fears and beliefs underneath the panic about weight gain is it that you're never going to be loved is it that people are going to make fun of you is it that um, you're not going to be healthy anymore you're not going to be beautiful anymore there are very specific beliefs underneath our panic that we need to address and be able to acknowledge because we have more power and control over the way we think and react when we at least know why it's happening. And then the next piece is that that panic is also usually even maybe even a trauma response. So there is an emotional feeling part that probably needs to be processed. And if you think that you do have more intense trauma or complex trauma, you need to get support to work through that. But a lot of our dieting and our reaction to gaining weight and our fear of future weight gain is trauma-based and it's a response to being shamed in the past or watching other people be shamed or living in a culture where people are shamed and where you feel ostracized and you know there's a lot there I know that that I, I think that that probably sounds like an overreaction to a lot of people that you know that it's trauma but as I do also talk about in my book and as I am writing about even more in the second book, trauma is not about what happened. It's about how your body processed it or rather didn't process it. It's about the ripple effects. It's about, you know, it's about that reaction. And in, in my perspective and in a lot of people's perspective, trauma is about getting back into the body and processing what we were unable to process the energy in the nervous system that came up during the traumatic experience, even if it wasn't that big of a deal on the outside, you still had the reaction and you still have unprocessed energy and chemicals and hormones inside your body and nervous system. So that is what trauma is. And that is a lot why we panic. I, I especially going through this process because, um, you know, diet culture is traumatic. And not only that, but a lot of people have an eating disorder because of another traumatic experience. And it doesn't have to be a diet culture trauma that is that has triggered 
disordered eating or eating disorder. So there can be like two different experiences of trauma. And not, not only that, but restricting your food is actually just like traumatic to the body in the first place. So there's a lot to unpack, but um, that, I mean, that is why it take it took a whole book <laughs> to explain. It's like, there's a physical part, there's a mental part, there's an emotional part. And that is the part that talks about the trauma. Um, and how it lives in our bodies. So it's a lot. It's really hard. It's not simple. You can't snap your fingers and get over it in a lot of cases. There are a lot of layers to unpack. There's a lot to feel. There's a lot to become aware of in your own brain. And yeah. So I thought, I thought, hold on, sorry. Oh God, that's the fish oil again that I took like three hours ago. That's not right. That can't be right. (sighs) Okay, so I thought I was going to answer more questions, but I actually think I should just get into the conversation with Shira, and I hope you enjoy it. I always start, I'm like, hi, and then I always cut that part out anyway. I usually just start with like the person being like, hey, I'm, my name's blah, 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 blah. So, um, so will you just introduce yourself for us so I can, (laughs) so I can basically just start with you introducing yourself? (laughs) Absolutely. Hi, I'm Shira and I am a therapist in New York. Um, I treat people with eating disorders, disordered eating and body image. And I also have a inclusive um, or I try to be as inclusive as possible style a body positive blog on Instagram and my website. And yeah. Thank you for being mm-hmm. here. I rescheduled on Shira three times. <laughs> third time's a charm. Th- third time's a charm. Or I guess technically two times. This is the third. This is the third charmed time. And I also said to her just a couple minutes ago, I was like, so I'm almost positive that your name is pronounced Shira. And she was like, nope, (laughs) it's not. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I want to start off by talking about your experience yourself um, in eating disorder recovery. And I know you're, you know, you're in the process. It is quite a process, eating disorder Mm -hmm. recovery. Um, but you've shared a lot about in the on your Instagram and on your blog about weight stigma and eating disorder recovery and how you know how that's affected you. So I, I'd love to hear your perspective and your experience with that. Yeah, it's it's hard to even know where to start because I know. it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would say I mean it starts with the fact that I had an eating disorder for four years as a child before anyone intervened. And I think, and I don't think I know that a lot of it had to do with the fact that I didn't look like somebody with an eating disorder. Mm. Um, and I was in a larger body as a teenager. And so my eating disorder, the, not only was it ignored, but I actually reached out for help when I was 12. And, um, the therapist kind of looked me up and down and was like, no, 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 like you're okay. So it took another like couple of years before I even got help. And at that point, my eating disorder was so incredibly severe, which was why anyone like in the first place even acknowledged it. They're like, oh, wait, I think she really does have an eating disorder. And at that point, it was so entrenched and so ingrained. It was four years later. And obviously, as we know, the the sooner you catch an eating disorder, the more likely it is to have a better outcome. So um, yeah, at that point, it started when I was 10, but I didn't get help till I was 14. But then I got help and, you know, the first hospitalization, the second day I was there, my doctor praised me for losing weight and congratulated me for like losing weight while I was in the hospital because I wasn't eating and I didn't have to eat because I wasn't, um, I didn't have anorexia. I had bulimia at the time. So that's like just even how it started. 
um, which was, yeah. Right. So basically it's, it's, this is coming off of these huge misconceptions about eating disorders and the assumption that we have culturally and then clearly even in the medical community about what you are supposed to look like if you have a restrictive eating disorder. Yes. And it's, it's just wild because now, you know, now that I have my own practice, I see clients in all bodies with anorexia in all bodies with binge eating disorder. You can't look at somebody and know what diagnosis they have, Mm. but there are so many practitioners and then everybody else that still believe that you, that we can look at somebody and know their diagnosis. And that's so inaccurate. Uh, It's just, it's, I feel like it's the, the biggest problem. Like, I feel like it is until we have a better understanding of body diversity and weight diversity and Mm -hmm. the fact that you, we really do not have ultimate control over our body size. This is just going to keep happening. Yes, exactly. Especially, you know, when there are people that come in, even when I went to treatment a couple of years ago, and at this point I was in a smaller body because I had anorexia and I was weight suppressed extremely weight suppressed, but I wasn't in a quote unquote underweight body by BMI standards. And I was still put on like a maintenance meal plan and um, not able to restore my weight. And, And then because of that, my brain didn't have the chance to heal and do what it needed to do to like get to a better place. And I was starving the entire time I was in treatment because they looked at my body and decided that it was fine the way it was. I even had my therapist tell me my entire stay, like, don't worry, if you stick to this meal plan, you won't gain a single pound. Of course I left and my weight started going up and I started to panic because she promised me it it wouldn't change. But of course my weight was going up. I'd starved myself down to the weight that I was like, that was not where I was meant to be. But yeah, we, we decide, we know where somebody should be based on what they look like or based on some like garbage BMI standards, which is a whole other story. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So what was, what was the moment or or how did you learn about health at every size and weight stigma? And what was the, uh, the moment or the process for you kind of having a a different understanding about how it actually works? I think my, like that, that piece is actually just interesting because, um, there was no like aha moment or for me, I think health literary side is something I always believed in. Um, and I was in grad school and I had a fellow, my classmate who we, we did an internship together and she was in a fat body and she did a really cool talk on health at every size and fat positivity. And I remember just being like, yeah, this, this makes sense. This is what I believe. And so I, there was no like, you know, like journey to this, I think because of my struggles, I think, and because of what my what I experienced in my body when I heard right. her like, use those words, I was like, yeah, of course. Well, um, you were experiencing it firsthand. You knew I'm right. starving myself and I still don't look like an emaciated person. Like, right. The picture that we all imagine when we imagine anorexia, you knew you, you were right. experiencing it firsthand. Right. And not only that, I was being praised and congratulated every step of the way. Right. Right. Oh, um, and something I've just seen you write about is just how, I mean, how toxic the treatment centers can be and how unaware they are of weight stigma. Like, how is that, how, how is that possible? Like, I mean, I believe me, I know it's possible. I know that that's (laughs) the situation, but why do you think we're unable to move past that? these treatment centers? Yeah. I think there are so many factors. I think 
and I wouldn't even know, like know where to start. I think I know, couple, I know, I know. I'm asking, yeah. I'm asking impossible questions. <laughs> no, but I think, I mean, there's a lot of factors at play. I think a couple of them could be number one, you know, insurance has a lot to do with um, diagnoses and, and has a lot to do with whether or not you get treatment. So if you, like a lot of times insurance won't cover people to get higher levels of care, if they're not in a smaller body, that was my experience trying to get help. I, my insurance, even though I had good insurance when I was a kid, my insurance wouldn't cover anything. And it was always like a huge battle to even get treatment in the first place. So I think people end up in treatment in lower weight, you know, in quote unquote, what, you know, what we believe to be lower weight bodies, um, in treatment. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so then that's not necessarily a good overview of what eating disorders are. And then treatment centers kind of perpetuate that by, it, by being like, oh, this is all about weight restoration when hello, like anorexia is actually not, and, and weight restoration is like a small percentage of the, of the entire population of people that make up eating disorders. I think mm -hmm. the other piece is people come, so treatment centers have the, a hugely high turnover rate. People don't realize like therapists are in and out, like they're there for a year, maybe mm. two, maybe just a few months. And they're all brand new to the field. They don't know what weight stigma is. They don't know what health at every size is. They don't even know right. what, barely know what eating disorders are and how to treat them. They're brand new and they're coming. And th those are the people that are treating the most vulnerable oh, population. Shit. Are you kidding? And like, yeah. And like at the end of the day, like, let's be honest, it's a money-making industry. Yeah. So it's about money. And I'm sorry that I'm sounding cynical, but this is the reality of me, of what I've experienced firsthand. And then what I see my clients experience. And of course there's a place for people to get help from treatment centers, but I don't think the way that it is right now, it's like, Oh yeah, she's struggling. Let's throw her in the hospital. I'm like, do you realize that you might be doing more harm than good? Like that should be the last resort, not the first resort. And right now it's the first resort. So yeah. No, I mean, it's so hard because well, in the position that I'm in where I'm essentially just sort of cultural commentary on what I experienced myself and what I learned from people like you, I always have to defer to, you know, when anyone asks me any question about anything, if they have a restrictive eating disorder, I have to say, please, you know, you, you really need to seek treatment while yeah. also knowing how flawed it can be and how weight centric it can be. And the amount of times I've heard someone say, yeah, when I was in treatment, it was all about, okay, well, you need to eat enough to gain some weight, but then we don't want you to gain weight past this point, which is like, right. are you kidding me? Right. Really? I know. And, and, and then, yeah, they set these like arbitrary weight goals, having no idea if like what that person's weight is often, especially if somebody's coming from such a long period of weight suppression. And yeah. And, and unfortunately people go to treatment to get help. And, you know, in one of my more recent experiences, and this time I was someone that like was educated in terms of, I was a therapist and I had my master's and I, um, was treating people for a while. And then I relapsed and I went to treatment knowing all the things and mm. still being incredibly hurt. Um, I mean, I've talked about this before, but I was in a treatment center where we had to like weigh and measure every single ounce that we consumed. I was mm. crackling off like chips to get it to the last ounce. I was weighing my Turkey. I was like, you know, just like measuring and we had to like oh level out the measurements of our, and I, all it did was reconfirm for me, like, oh, your body has to be micromanaged. Your body, like, is, it can't, you can't be trusted. You have to watch every single thing you consume. It was, like, gold for my eating disorder. And it was, right. and I, I, I didn't come in measuring my food and I left, like, not being able to stop because that's what I was taught in treatment. And this is supposedly a health at every size center, you know? That is so wild to me. Ugh, yeah. What? I, yeah. 
I, we had like the, this thing where you're able to have four frees a day and like free means like, I don't know, ketchup or syrup or things to make your food taste good. Right. So if I had breakfast and I put ketchup on my eggs, do not judge. That's how I like it. And then I would put, um, creamer in my coffee. Then I would have to decide like, wait, am I allowed to put syrup on my pancakes? Like maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should save my free, what which is hell? so funny. Right. Because like, I'm doing the best thing. I, I'm doing like the best thing for myself, which is like, I'm not listening to my eating disorder. I'm letting my food taste good. I'm putting the thing and, but like, no, I have to like ration them out. <laughs> so Wait, that is yeah. so, and, and you're saying that's a health at every size. Or, oh, they, or, or, they're like one of the most known places to market themselves as health, as health every size. And every time I see them marketing themselves and all these professionals being like, oh yeah, it's amazing. It makes me want to die inside because I know what they were like. And I know the harm that was done to me. And I know the harm that was done to other people because I didn't even go in a larger body. I went in a weight suppressed, much smaller body. So, and I saw people in actual larger bodies with me in treatment who like, they didn't have furniture for, and they didn't have towels for their bodies. And <sighs> they were, they were told that they had to go on the exercise, like on the 15 minute walks when nobody else was told that. So I was watching this happen to not just me, but people in larger bodies and and then seeing all these professionals be like, yes, this program is great. It's so health at every size. So what like, the hell, like what, yeah. where is the disconnect? Like, is it, is it that there's no communication between, you know, the heads of the program and the people really running it? Or is it really that much? What am I trying to say? Is it really, um, are, are the people who are running that treatment center really that confused about what health at every size is? I think that the people at the top genuinely care and want to make it, there are people there on top yeah, that want to make it health at every size and they genuinely do. But ultimately there's, there's so much turnover. There are so many brand new people to the field. I remember asking my therapist, you know what health at every size is? And she's like, that's not relevant. And I was like, it kind of is. I need to know if I'm safe in my body. And she was just like, no, no, no. And so she had no idea what health at every size was. And this was my, my therapist in treatment. So oh, no. yeah, ultimately people at the top, they're trying to do their best. They're trying to do trainings. And there have, there has been some movement. They, they're working on the food piece. Like they are working on things. It's just, I don't know how possible it is given, given all this. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And the insurance piece and everything. And yeah. and the fact that, you know, and I'm sure you know this and I, and I kind of want to hear from your perspective um, and you're a therapist. So that's a, that's a different perspective than going through school to become a dietitian, which we know um, is extremely, extremely weight centric and right. focus and um, you know, focuses on BMI and um, really anyone who becomes a health at every size or intuitive eating dietitian has to go through, has to seek that out on their own. Right. Exactly. Additional, it's like, and, and basically has to unlearn a lot of what they learned in school. Right. And I was actually also just thinking, I mean, we do live in a world that's inherently fat phobic across the mm -hmm. board. So it makes sense that it's going to infiltrate treatment centers too. Yes, of course. And, and that's yeah. probably the, the, the biggest piece, honestly, and the hardest piece to actually address. Yeah. We're trying. <laughs> yeah. I know. Trying. Shout it out to the rooftops as much as we can. And I'm grateful oh. for your voice. Yeah. Oh, I'm grateful for yours. And I'm Thank so glad you. I know how to pronounce your name. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you went, decided to go to school, um, to go back to school, I'm assuming. I don't know if you just stayed in school or if you... No, I stayed in school. I didn't. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you... Uh, 
what was that decision like? Did you know you wanted to go into treating eating disorders? Where were you in, in your own process? Yeah. Um, I actually, I, so I, I knew I wanted to be a therapist. I toyed with the idea of being a nurse for a little bit, but ultimately I kind of knew I wanted to be a therapist since I was a teenager. Um, and so, but I did not think I was going to treat eating disorders. I mean, you learn, well, if you have an eating disorder, you can't, unless you get to this like perfect version mm-hmm. of healed for this amount of years and this amount of time. And, um, so I, I just was going to be a general therapist. Um, I, and I worked in an outpatient clinic, um, for a few years while I was getting my clinical social work degree. Um, you have to, you have to have 2000 hours after your master's to get like, to be able right. to have a private practice. Right. So I was, but then I got a client with an eating disorder cause I was in an outpatient clinic and I remember just feeling so passionate about the work and doing mm. really wonderful work with her and just feeling so inspired and being like, Oh, this is what I meant to do. Right. Um, so really I hadn't gone into it at all, but that was kind of the pivotal moment moment for me where I was like, no, this is what I'm going to be doing. So after I got my clinical hours, I specifically, um, seeked out, you know, a practice that specifically worked with people with eating disorders and made that kind of my goal and my focus. That's amazing. I mean, that, and that makes a lot of sense that you, um, that you had this personal experience, you had this, you know, you, you genuinely care about it and you know so much uh, from the inside. Right. And I, I also, I've also experienced, you know, so much harm trying to get help and not knowing any better and then being harmed again and again. And I just, obviously we're all going to do harm. We're all humans and, you know, we all do our best to repair, but ultimately I just wanted to be a clinician treating people with eating disorders and like letting people know that their bodies are not broken and they're not a problem that needs to be fixed. And that, and I want to, like, there are so many times where I'm the first person that's ever told a client, no, like your body's okay. Your body's not broken. And it's, it's just an amazing experience every single time. Oh, it's so needed. It's so needed. Like, and that's, you know, what before when I was saying like, what can be done? Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to help, you know, treatment centers? The answer is more people going into it who have either firsthand experience and actually understand. Cause I, I yeah. understand like I understand that there are a lot of, let's use the example of dietitians who go into, you know, who go into the field because of disordered eating that, that is often not ever addressed. Right. So then it's like perpetuating that on their clients and it becomes this thing that just keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. So I understand conceptually, like you want to be healed, but we, but we don't have awareness about what that actually even means. And so for me, it's less about being, if for me, it's less, less about being this like random version of healed and more about an understanding and awareness of, of diet culture, of the exactly. harm that diets do about why that's a problem about fat phobia, about examining your own fat phobia that everyone has. And if you deny it, that scares me Right. Um, just to, <laughs> to, to know about weight stigma, to like learn from people in larger bodies. Like yeah. there's so much that you can do separate from, and of course doing your own healing work, but I don't, care about some like random version of, mm-hmm. of what, what healed is, because again, that, that also in and of itself is so, um, privileged. So, yeah, yeah, no, that, and that makes so much sense, so much sense. And that would even be like, that would be like saying to, um, a therapist who works with families and works with marriages that you can't be divorced and you can't have right. struggles or you can't have struggles in your marriage. It's like, hello, 
Right. <laughs> and also we, and, and also, you know, a therapist can't be a therapist if they experience depression or anxiety, but somehow it's different. Like eating disorders are like it's this whole other thing. No, like we don't say that about any other issue about any other condition. It, it, yeah. If anything, yeah. People that have gone through these things, who better to understand what it's like, it's uh, so assuming, true. assuming they're able to have good boundaries and assuming they understand diet culture and all these other pieces. Right. You know? Right. And yeah. I, yes, absolutely. And I think the understanding diet culture and understanding weight stigma and mm-hmm. really, um, you know, I, I, again, I, I just think that the, one of the most important pieces is genuinely understanding that body diversity is fucking real. <laughs> yes. Okay. Right. And the, the, the myths around being able to ultimately control your body and the myth, you know, the myth that it's always just calories in versus calories out, which it's just right. Or assuming that somebody in a larger body has like unworked trauma to, to, to work right. on so they could right. release some weight. And it's like, no, right. the only trauma they have is now to deal with you as a therapist who made that judgment. Yes. You know? Yes. Oh, wow. Well, you're doing amazing work and it's really like, that's that, this is what we need. We need more people who have this understanding and who have this compassion and for, I think, firsthand expertise to be helping people who are in similar situations. And I am hopeful that, you know, I see more intuitive eating and um, non-diet dietitians out there and um, therapists that are working on this piece. And I'm trying to just stay hopeful that maybe this is spreading more and that it's maybe one day going to become the, just like the rule and not the exception. Right. I I, I definitely see it slowly changing. I mean, of course, you and I know it's still a huge problem, but I do, I right. do see more. And sometimes I'm like, is that just because that's my bubble on Instagram? Right. I know. I, I wonder that too. Yeah. Hard. I know. So what would you say um, to someone who is in maybe a similar position to the one that you were in where they know that they have a restrictive eating disorder um, or just any eating disorder, but that they are experiencing weight stigma when they try to get help? I would say, first of all, like if your gut is saying that something is off, please listen to it. It's so important and it's so valuable. You don't need to gaslight yourself, even though everybody else is gaslighting you. Listen to your gut. Um, And then I think really doing some research around providers, and I know that's a privilege and I know not everyone has access, which is so not okay and our health system is broken, but if it's available to you to really research um, providers, a lot of times you'll see inconsistencies on their website, like I treat eating disorders and also weight loss. That's a huge red flag, right? If you want to see things like health at every size, fat positive, weight neutral, um, all like, and and you want to make sure there's no inconsistencies and confusion on their website. So Mm -hmm. I would do research, find health at every size providers, try to get creative with your treatment. You know, if it's just seeking out community and support and uh, a fat positive community, like there's, there's a lot of other things you can do in addition. Obviously professionals are, you know, it's an important part, but also just building a fat positive community is so essential. Yes. Yes. That's great advice. What did, I mean, the the answer may be (laughs) exactly the same, but Mm -hmm. what has been the most helpful piece or pieces of your own recovery process? 
Yeah, for me, it was getting creative with my treatment and turning to just maybe less traditional ways of getting help in, in, ter in terms of like not going back to a higher level of care again and being harmed. So just, yeah, seeking mm. out. Um, for me, it was a little different because I have colleagues in the field. And so I right. kind of lean on them for support in a lot of ways. Um, for me, it was also, you know, there's one narrative when it comes to recovery, the thin white woman. And that's not so helpful for me. It's, right. it's a very different experience to recover in a body that's socially acceptable versus recovering into a body that's in a world that is awful to people in larger bodies. Yeah. So for me, I, it was so important to see fat people living full lives and thriving and happy and doing meaningful work. For me, that was so, so, so important for my healing. And so um, surrounding myself with people who had bodies like mine and not like bodies like mine, but living full lives right um outside of like the one narrative that we normally see was really important for me i totally agree i think that that's yeah. like the number one most important thing and even i mean i you know i have so much thin privilege but even for me that was mm -hmm. like such an important piece of my own healing yeah we need to see fat people like happy and living lives and doing cool things i don't want to see the headless fatty with like you know the, just their torso and all of those photos and they're miserable and sad like i, I that's no you know what i mean yeah no it's yeah. so bad and that's everywhere yeah thank you so much can you tell us where to find you of course um if you want to find out information about my therapy practice it's shira rosenbluth lcsw.com or you can find me on instagram and my blog which is the shira rose for all things fashion health at every size eating disorder recovery and all that stuff yay and i'll link to that mm -hmm. in the show notes thank you so much shira of course my pleasure you can find the links to find everything in this episode's show notes so links to find shira links to find this episode's sponsors and before i leave you I want to share this tiny little conversation that we had after we officially stopped having our chat about The Vow, that documentary that I have been talking about that is about the cult Nexium. And I've also watched the other documentary on Stars called Seduced, and they both give different perspectives. Um, and Stars actually has more information because it was put together after the trial. Um, but they're both really good, but there is a lot of parallel to diet culture. So here it is. A little bit unrelatedly, are you watching The Vow on HBO? I just started it literally last night. I love the show. It is so freaky, but there's a lot of diet culture stuff in the actual cult, which is also fascinating and not surprising. My client was just telling you that there's like calorie counting and stuff and like, yeah, these, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, and you know, it's literally, that's like literally a form of brainwashing to like, they had oh. people staying up all night playing volleyball as like, oh, this is bonding. We don't need, if you are like really doing work on yourself, you don't really need sleep. Oh but then my that God. like wears people down and yeah. like not, you know, it's the whole thing. It's this reversal of like all, any like pain or anger or problems or sadness or or, or exhaustion that's just you not having worked through all your stuff that's a jesus fucking christ oh my god okay that i i just started i only got like 20 minutes in. it was like one in the morning but i'm gonna um, watch it yeah the first episode is a little bit slow but by okay. the end of the first episode i was like oh yeah here we go it's really good okay i'm gonna watch it thank you for listening and i'll talk to you guys in two weeks if you like this episode I mean, if you like this podcast or this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe this podcast. It really does help. Okay, talk to you later. Bye.